This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. This episode is brought to you by Easy Recess, your ultimate support for the first hour of resuscitation. This amazing phone app has drug dosing, treatment algorithms, and procedural aids all in under three clicks. Rapid access to life-saving critical info in a user-friendly interface. Try the app for free with the promo code EMCASES or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCASES. That's the letters E-Z recess.com slash EMCASES. As part of our Best of University of Toronto EM Quick Hit series, it's my pleasure to have back on the show Dr. Olivia Ostro. Dr. Ostro is an academic clinician and the Director of Quality for the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at the Hospital for Sick Children and an Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. With her work in patient safety, she's developed a special interest in a relatively uncommon but life-threatening true emergency that unfortunately is on the rise where super fast recognition and management is paramount. Can you guess what this pediatric emergency medicine topic is? Well, it's button battery ingestion. So those little disc-shaped batteries that we use for so many gadgets, from flashlights to car keys and even children's toys, you'll see this in children under the age of six years old. And the problem is that recognizing it can be really tricky because often no one sees the child ingesting that button battery. So welcome back to EM Cases, Dr. Ostro. It's awesome to have you back. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Um, delighted to be here and, and to talk about, as you said, a topic that's really become a growing interest of mine. Button battery injuries are not only dangerous, but they are becoming more common. In fact, there's been a ninefold increase in button battery injuries in the last 20 years. In fact, we are looking at our data at SickKids, where I work, and we've actually had our highest number of button battery ingestions last year in 2022 with nine ingestions. I did mention at the top that button battery ingestions can be life-threatening. And the first question is, is why? Like, let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology. Why is it so dangerous? Like, what's going on when a four-year-old tries to swallow a button battery? So the lithium button batteries, those are becoming more common. And the increasing size and in, in as well as the voltage make children at risk for higher rates of injury due to impaction, particularly impaction in the proximal or middle part of the esophagus. Esophageal button battery impactions is really where the significant risk is. And then the risk tends to decrease if the battery makes it to the stomach and or beyond, but it's certainly important to still know how to manage. And so the way that it works is that it's it's a caustic injury, so not a thermal injury, and it leads to a chemical reaction causing an alkaline burn. So essentially, the mucosa of the tissues bridges the positive and negative terminal of the button battery to complete an electric circuit. And this current leads to water being hydrolyzed into hydroxide, which results in a rapid increase in tissue pH, leading to liquefactive necrosis. And this, their burn, this alkaline burn through, will burn through the esophagus, the trachea, and the major blood vessels. And this can lead to several complications, life-threatening injuries, and even death through things like a tracheoesophageal fistula 
or aorta esophageal fistula. Yeah, I mean, just listening to the potential badness that can occur from ingesting a button battery, it's kind of surprising that button batteries are so ubiquitous and can also cause so much damage and that you don't hear people talking about them in public too often. So that's just a little precursor to how we might end this quick hit in terms of what we can do from a wider societal perspective. Absolutely. Uh, Because we wouldn't be talking about this if button batteries weren't accessible to little kids. All right. So now that we have a little understanding of how the button battery eats through the esophagus and the trachea and the blood vessels when it's impacted in the esophagus, how is button battery ingestion likely to present to your ED? Because I imagine that many of these ingestions won't be seen by the parents. They won't be witnessed. And so you won't know necessarily that there is a button battery ingestion. So what are some of the clues clinically that might tweak you to thinking, okay, this is a button battery ingestion. Maybe I should get some imaging and and start managing this patient. That's a really important point. So symptoms can be very specific and they can be vague. So, you know, when we think about a foreign body ingestion in a child, there could be many types of ingestions and button batteries being one of them. You can think of a child with a choking event who then develops sort of that immediate cough, chest pain, wheezing. Those are going to be the textbook symptoms. But unfortunately, as you said, the symptoms don't always present that way and can be more vague. So sometimes you just have a child who's presenting with vomiting and usually more later findings and even after prior ingestion, you can see hematemesis. You can see a child presenting with decreased feeding, acute food refusal that's not really explained why, and and, and some respiratory symptoms, and even described in the literature a fever. So you really need to have a high suspicion to have button battery ingestions on your differential diagnosis. Additionally, sometimes parents do witness an ingestion, but they're uncertain what the object is, or parents might often present saying that their child swallowed a coin. When I hear a child swallowing a coin, I always think that this could potentially be a button battery until proven otherwise. Great point. So when a parent comes in with a a suspected object, including a coin, always keep in mind that that coin, we need to prove that it's not a button battery. And we'll talk about uh, how to use our x-rays to help us distinguish a coin versus a button battery. That's a great pearl. I love that because I have to be honest that when a parent tells me that a child's ingested a coin... I just take it at face value and, okay, they've ingested a coin. But that's that's a one that I imagine can get easily misinterpreted. And what about the timing of the onset of symptoms? I mean, my understanding is that this caustic chemical reaction that breaks down the tissue and causes severe burning, this can all happen very quickly, like within hours. But that it can also be delayed. So how about the timing? Can you tell us a little bit about the timing of, of the presentations and the onset of symptoms? So the timing of presentation after ingestion has a wide spectrum from a couple hours to to several days. And a lot of that gets back to whether the ingestion was witnessed or not by parents. But what is important to know is that really the damage to tissue starts within two hours. And so we have used, as we started looking at the care that we provide at SickKids, we use that two-hour time frame as that critical window. If we can remove the button battery within that time frame, the risk of, of severe and fatal injury dramatically decreases. But the literature really supports that the risk for more severe injury and death tends to occur after a 12 hours of, of ingestion. And that's because after 12 hours, we know there's an increased risk of perforation. Okay. So time is esophagus. Time is life of the child. I want to talk about 
first what you can do in the emergency department, what you need to do in the emergency department for a suspected button battery ingestion. So there's imaging, and then there's some initial treatments that we can give. And I imagine that you want to get the imaging done and give your initial treatments in parallel as soon as possible. So can you just give us a sense of how you would manage a patient, let's say a three-year-old, let's say it's a known button battery ingestion. They come in, let's say they had a choking episode and they're refusing to eat and they have some chest pain and the parents said, oh, they just ingested the button battery an hour and a half ago. So what do you actually do in the emergency department for these kids? So it's important to have a plan in place. If you have a child who comes in with a witness known button battery ingestion, there are several steps that should be taken simultaneously. First is to think about giving the child a neutralizing agent, such as sulcrophate or pasteurized honey, immediately so it can reduce the pH and coat the battery to delay the battery discharge and subsequent alkaline burns to tissue. If you have honey, only honey available, the recommended dose is two teaspoons or 10 milliliters of honey. You can give up to six doses, 10 minutes apart for each dose. It's important to note that if you're going to give honey or sulcrophate, it must be under 12 hours. And the reason being for this is that we know that the risk of perforation increases after 12 hours. You also must be ensured that there's no concerns for an acute airway, so the child must be able to swallow. In an emergency room, ideally in a a hospital setting, you have sulcrophate available. And so sulcrophate would be the drug of choice if immediately available with one gram or 10 milliliters every 10 minutes up to three doses. So in a healthcare setting, if you have sulcrophate immediately available, this should be your first choice. If not, honey is a great second option and something parents can also be delivering to their child en route to the emergency room. Again, if the child can safely swallow or something that EMS can also deliver to a child en route to an emergency room. All right. So just to review there, it's either sucralfate, one gram every 10 minutes for a maximum of three doses, or pasteurized honey, two teaspoons or 10 mils, again, every 10 minutes for a total of six doses. But you have to be sure that the ingestion was within 12 hours and that there's no airway issues that they can actually swallow the stuff. That's correct. Got it. Okay. And besides the sucralfate or honey, what else can we do for these patients in the ED until they get definitive management in the OR if, if it is impacted in the esophagus? In parallel, you want to have a mechanism in place so that the child can receive a STAT, AP, and lateral X-ray that includes the neck and the chest to look for the, the site of the battery. What you're looking for on the X-ray is what's called the halo sign on the AP and the step-off sign on the lateral on the lateral X-ray, and these are pathognomonic for a button battery, and can help you distinguish from a coin. All right, let's go over those. So the halo sign for the AP and the step-off sign for the lateral X-ray. Can you just try and describe those, and we'll have some pictures in the show notes to yeah, go along with sh- that. For sure. Pictures are really helpful to take a look at so you know to recognize it. But the halo sign really has this outer ring type presence that you will see on the disc battery that you would not see present on a coin. And then on the lateral sign, on the lateral x-ray, you will see the step-off sign. I would describe the step-off as an interrupted circle where you're seeing sort of a step or a wedge moving into the circle that doesn't keep, keep it a completely circular, perfectly circular shape as you would expect. So again, the halo sign on x-ray is on the AP, and you'll see sort of a ring within a ring. So 
two rings rather than one that looks like a halo. And then on the lateral x-ray, you'll see the step-off sign, which is sort of like a wedge taken out of a circle. That's correct. And it can be very subtle. So you really want to zoom in uh, when you're looking at these images so that you can find them. And again, if you're not certain, have that high index of suspicion, reach out to your local radiologist or another colleague to take a look at that film with you. Okay, great. So let's say you've identified the button battery in the esophagus. It's time for lights and sirens and getting your pediatric tertiary care center on the phone for endoscopic removal of the battery. But let's say the battery looks like it's passed through the esophagus into the stomach or the duodenum. How does that change your management? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and this area has been a bit more controversial in how we manage batteries that are distal to the lower esophageal junction, so in the stomach and, and beyond. And really, it comes down to the patient's age and the size of the battery. So if a child is younger than five years or the battery is greater than 20 millimeters or larger, then really urgent removal is recommended. But otherwise, for older children or for smaller size batteries, often uh, these patients can wait and sort of observe uh, to see if any symptoms develop. And a lot of times these patients will pass the battery on their own within their stool. And then if the battery does not pass or symptoms were to develop before the battery passing, then the parent should be instructed what to look out for and when to return to your emergency room for repeat imaging. It's really important to have a plan in place in your local emergency department of how you're going to handle a child that comes in with a button battery ingestion. Because as we talked about, timing is everything, and that window of two hours is really, really critical. So in secondary prevention and and really aligning with high reliability principles in patient safety where we have that preoccupation with failure, it's important to know what will our emergency room's plan be to ensure this child has endoscopic removal of this battery as quickly as possible. So depending on your centers, your plan may vary. In some centers, that might be your local ENT colleagues or your gastroenterology colleagues who can remove the button battery for you. But in other centers, that is not feasible and they need to go to a pediatric tertiary care center. And critical in doing that, everything in parallel should be notifying that tertiary care center that you're sending a child to them that has a button battery impaction, again, to limit time delays, because we know the time that it takes to get an operating room prepared, to have an operating room available, and to get all the people required in to get that battery removed in in an OR. And so the more that we can prepare our teams and prepare our different facilities that we need to help, that will help limit the, the amount of time of the impaction. So that might involve calling an advanced transport team who can assist with getting a child to a higher level of care more quickly. Or sometimes, depending on where you live, the fastest mechanism is to have the parent drive their stable child to that tertiary care center. So again, it's really about knowing how are we going to manage these in advance so when they do occur, that plan can be carried out as quickly as possible. It would probably be prudent for most hospitals to develop a button battery ingestion protocol so that these things can happen quickly. So you're not trying to guess, oh, should it be ENT or should it be gastroenterology or or do I need to transfer this patient out? Or you just have a protocol with a checklist, advanced directives for x-ray, et cetera, and you can get that patient to definitive care faster. Exactly. All right. Dr. Ostro, anything else you wanted to add about what we need to know about button battery ingestions? I think it's important to recognize that injuries can be ongoing even after the button battery is removed. So symptoms can develop weeks to months after a button battery has been removed. 
And that's because ongoing injury can still occur in the esophagus. So children are, are closely monitored at home for two months of delayed complications that could present at your local emergency department with recurrent vomiting, hematemesis, acute airway concerns. If any of those uh, symptoms are present in a child that has a history of a recent button battery ingestion in the last couple months, think about a complication from that button battery ingestion. Wow. Even after it's been removed, you can still burn through your esophagus. Unfortunately, yes. There are reports and we've seen cases of these severe outcomes. So we've talked about recognizing these patients that can be sometimes tricky. We've talked about the ED management and some of the things that you could do in your institution to help facilitate getting these kids taken care of faster. What do you think the best way to avoid button battery ingestion in the first place is? It's really important as healthcare providers that we counsel and empower families with young children about how to safely use, store, and discard of batteries to prevent these devastating injuries. As you said, button batteries are really found in many household items. And I think many people would be surprised to see how many of the items they have in their house currently have them. So we think about, for sure, many children's toys have batteries, but really also everyday items like our watches, our car keys, calculators. Button batteries are commonly in in hearing aids. So simple tips such as storing batteries out of reach and sight, taping batteries with duct tape or packing tape prior to disposal, and using drop-off depots can prevent children from being injured from these button batteries. So it sounds like uh, some public education, maybe some policy around alternatives to using button batteries and children's toys, especially that seems like kind of a no-brainer Yes, uh, that we really shouldn't be using button batteries and children's toys at all. But I'll leave that up to uh, the powers that be. Anything we can do to prevent these injuries is critical. And so you're absolutely right that advocacy is essential. As healthcare workers, we advocate for patients' health on a daily basis, and we never want to see a patient suffer from a preventable injury. Just last year, the United States passed RESIS law, which requires the Consumer Product Safety Commission to require child-resistant closures on products that use these button batteries and also include more stringent warning labels on all packaging. Australia has similar laws as well. Canada currently does not. All right, so we've got some work to do. Thanks so much, Dr. Ostro, for your insights into button battery ingestions. It's certainly going to be on my radar for the kitty who comes in with some vague symptoms, and I'll be sure to get that stat x-ray done to rule that out. Thank you. Now that we're well into the new year, I just wanted to give a huge thanks to the entire EM Cases production team, the incredible guest experts, the Quick Hits team, the Quiz Vault and Anki Cards team, all the great authors of the ECG Cases, Journal Club, and Global EM Blogs, SREMI, the University of Toronto Emergency Medicine, my web development team, and of course you, the listeners of the podcast and the soaker uppers of the EM Cases learning system. I'm so grateful to be doing what I'm doing. So again, thank you so much. And thanks to those of you who have hit the donation button in the top right corner of the website on your laptop or at the bottom of your page on your cell phone. In just the last few weeks since we made it possible to donate to EM Cases to keep us free open access, we've had so many of you generously donate some money so that we can continue to provide you with Foam Ed. All right, next up is Britt Long on a topic that comes up quite often in my practice, and that is Clostridium difficile infection. 
Things have changed over the last few years when it comes to C. diff. So here we go. Diarrhea is not one of the most exciting chief complaints to care for, but there are some potentially dangerous causes. One of these is Clostridioides difficile. C. difficile is an anaerobic, gram-positive, spore-forming, enterotoxin-producing bacterium that most commonly causes watery, diffuse diarrhea. But there are some important considerations for us in the ED. The number of patients who present with diarrhea and have C. diff is kind of shocking. About 10% of patients who present to the ED with diarrhea have C. diff infection, and a recent study conducted over eight years found over 900,000 ED visits with the primary diagnosis of C. diff infection, so it's probably more common than we realize. Risk factors do play a big role in the development of C. diff infection, including patient exposure and susceptibility. Exposure risks center on contact with contaminated individuals or clinical settings like healthcare exposure. Susceptibility risks include factors like recent antibiotic use and immunocompromised states. C. diff infection has classically been associated with antibiotic use, and this is one of the biggest risk factors. Fluoroquinolones, beta-lactam and beta-lactamase inhibitors, third and fourth generation cephalosporins, carbapenems, and clindamycin are major culprits. The two big ones for you to remember are fluoroquinolones and clindamycin. While the typical exposure is over 7 to 10 days, the exposure can even be a single dose or a patient who received the antibiotic three months prior to their presentation. A second major risk factor is prior healthcare exposure or hospitalization, even a single night in the hospital. However, you need to keep in mind that up to 40% of patients with C. diff infection don't have a prior antibiotic exposure, and up to 18% have no prior healthcare exposure. C. diff infection rates are five times higher in elderly patients compared to other ages. Proton pump inhibitors are also a potential risk factor, but the data demonstrating this are pretty controversial. The classic presentation is an ill-appearing patient with diffuse, watery stools, and recent antibiotic use or hospitalization. But studies show a large range of signs and symptoms, including abdominal pain in up to 90% of patients, fever in 20-50%, to bloody stools in up to 20%, and watery diarrhea. Diarrhea is often not an isolated symptom. Nausea and vomiting can occur in up to 30% of cases. With this variety of GI presentations, the key is to think about C. diff in patients with acute onset of three or more unformed stools without another explanation. These patients should undergo testing for C. diff. Also think about C. diff in those with GI symptoms plus constitutional symptoms like fever or chills, as well as a pertinent history of antibiotic use, comorbid conditions, and recent healthcare visits. With that, what testing should you consider? Testing really centers on detection of the organism or the production of toxin A or B. The most common tests in the ED include a toxin assay and nucleic acid amplification. Toxin assay is specific, but it only has a sensitivity of around 50 to 60%. The nucleic acid amplification test is very sensitive, but it can't really differentiate asymptomatic colonization from active infection so be sure to obtain this only in your symptomatic patients. While there isn't any general consensus as to which lab test is the best for C. diff infection, most centers use the nucleic acid amplification test because of its higher sensitivity. Current guidelines emphasize a two or even three-step algorithm, basically using a high sensitivity test and a high specificity test. The key takeaway is to follow your institution guidelines when it comes to testing. The next step once we have a positive test or think C. diff infection is present is to determine the severity. 
But unfortunately, there really aren't clear, prospectively validated severity scores. And even current guidelines aren't agreed upon. Current severity classifications are based on laboratory values and the patient status. There's non-severe, severe, and fulminant. Severe infection includes patients with a white blood cell count over 15,000 or a creatinine of greater than 1.5 milligrams per deciliter. Fulminant infection includes patients with signs of shock, vasopressor requirement, elevated lactate, or toxic megacolon. Toxic megacolon is a deadly complication. You need to think about this in patients with peritonitis, severe pain or tenderness, distension, and guarding. Imaging will show a significantly dilated colon, usually over 6 centimeters. Recurrent infection is defined by three or more C. diff infection episodes. Finally, let's get to therapy. The first step is stopping any causative factor, like an antibiotic. Previous guidelines for first-line antibiotics included oral metronidazole for mild disease and oral vancomycin for moderate to severe disease. However, there have been several RCTs that have shown greater cure rates with oral vancomycin compared to metronidazole. Other RCTs have found fidaxomycin and oral vancomycin to be nearly equal in efficacy, but fidaxomycin may have lower rates of recurrence. For the first episode in non-severe cases, use oral vancomycin or fidaxomycin for 10 days. If these aren't available, you can use metronidazole. For severe cases, use enteral vancomycin or fidaxomycin, while for fulminate cases, speak with your GI specialist and surgeon early. Use enteral vancomycin, which can be given orally and rectally. If ileus is present, use vancomycin rectally. Fecal transplant is an alternative to surgery in these high-risk patients. Recurrent episodes of C. diff infection that have been previously treated with oral metronidazole should be treated with oral vancomycin or fidaxomycin. The show notes will have these antibiotic regimens and doses. One final takeaway, make sure to wash with soap and water when you're caring for these patients. The alcohol-based sanitizer doesn't kill the spores. Special thanks to Dr. Dave Talon for the assistance with this podcast. Thanks for listening, and hopefully this clears up a potentially messy condition. Excellent review of the key things we need to know about C. diff in the ED. Thank you so much, Dr. Long. Next up is ECG Cases, Jesse McLaren. Now, there's a good reason why we should order an ECG on pretty much every tox patient we see in the ED. It's really quite amazing that when we get that altered patient with an unknown overdose, we can sometimes nail the diagnosis just from the ECG. So here's Jesse McLaren on ECG interpretation in the TOX patient. Your triage nurse hands you an ECG from a patient with a potential overdose. What do you look for? ECGs are an important test for the diagnosis and prognosis of toxicology cases, but they need to be accurately interpreted. A Poison Center study found that one in four referrals provided inaccurate ECG interpretation that was clinically significant or would have resulted in a change in toxicology recommendations. The authors concluded that clinicians need to provide careful ECG interpretation because telephone recommendations by Poison Center consultants can only be as good as the information they are based on. As with ECG interpretation in general, we can't rely on the computer interpretation either to identify all the abnormalities or to integrate them into an overall impression that can guide patient care. So how can we improve our ECG interpretation in toxicology? First, it helps to remember cardiac electrophysiology and how it can be affected. 
sinus, and AV nodes are innervated by adrenergic and vagal receptors, which can produce tachy or bradyarrhythmias. Their cardiac action potential involves ion flows in and out of heart cells, which can be blocked or enhanced. Sodium channels are responsible for ventricular depolarization, represented by the QRS, while potassium channels are responsible for ventricular repolarization, represented by the QT. And sodium-potassium HPAs is responsible for intracellular calcium and vagal tone on the AV node. After recalling cardiac electrophysiology, we then need systematic ECG interpretation. This starts with a heart rate and rhythm. Bradycardia, or junctional rhythms, might indicate toxicity from beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, or digoxin, which may require specific antidotes beyond ACLS treatment. Tachycardia could be a direct response from sympathomimetics or anticholinergics, or a response to vasodilation. Sinus tachycardia sounds like a simple enough rhythm to identify, but if there's a wide QRS or a long QT, it might be difficult to identify the P waves. The best leads for sinus activity and the limb leads is lead 2, where the P waves are upright, or the precordial leads V1, where the P waves are biphasic. On the other hand, non-sinus arrhythmias, or ectopy, are important to identify both because they may need their own treatment and because they can indicate a more severe toxicity. Next is electrical conduction. Medications that produce bradycardia can also cause AV block, so it's important to look at the PR interval. Then the QRS and the QT interval. These were the biggest sources of error in the poison center study, and they are crucial to accurately interpret in toxicology cases. Sodium channel blockade delays ventricular depolarization, which prolongs the QRS. While a wide QRS is traditionally defined as greater than 120 milliseconds, any QRS of greater than 100 in the setting of sodium channel blocker toxicity is an indication for sodium bicarb. Potassium channel blockade delays ventricular repolarization, which prolongs a QT. And a corrected QTC of greater than 500 milliseconds is an indication for magnesium. Next is the axis which is also important for sodium channel toxicity. Because they have a disproportionate impact on the right-sided conducting system, sodium channel blockers produce a terminal rightward axis shift, producing a deep S-wave in lead 1 and a tall R-wave in lead AVR. Finally, ST and T-wave changes. Here it's important to consider the specific toxin and the differential for ST and T-wave changes. ST elevation could reflect a brugada pattern from sodium channel blockers, Osborne waves from lethargic patients who have become hypothermic outside, or vasospasm or acute coronary inclusion from cocaine. ST depression could indicate demand ischemia, hypokalemia from toxin-mediated vomiting, or simply digitalis effect. This is just a brief overview of a large and complex topic, so when you see that triage ECG from the potentially poisoned patient, don't hesitate to call a toxicologist for help but we also need to provide them with accurate ECG interpretation. And this requires a systematic approach including heart rate and rhythm, electrical conduction, axis, and ST and T-wave changes, which is the same systematic approach we need to apply to all ECGs. For more, visit the latest ECG cases blog on EM cases to see a variety of toxicology cases with ECG changes. And if you're interested in improving your ECG interpretation skills, whether you're a student, resident, or practicing clinician, Visit heartsecgcourse.com for more. Now, there's an excellent pediatric EM website from overseas called Don't Forget the Bubbles. 
Dr. Andrew Tag and Tessa Davis, the co-founders, were kind enough to contribute some of their best stuff to EM Cases, in particular the great content they do that is quite hard to find anywhere else. So here's Dr. Joe Mullally on another topic I see a fair bit in my practice, and that is bedbugs. So today I'm going to talk to you about bedbugs. Not the most exciting of topics, not the most exciting thing to present to your emergency department, but it is really important to be able to discern it from other insect bites, as it can be quite tricky to manage infestations. So to present a case, a 10-year-old boy has just returned from Paris watching the Rugby World Cup with his father. They present to your emergency department because of some strange bites that the child has picked up. These bites are intensely itchy and they're absolutely maddening for the child. You happen to notice that they're in a classic zigzag pattern, which represents breakfast, lunch and dinner, quite often in a Z shape. Since you've listened to this podcast, you know that Paris has actually recently undergone a large bedbug infestation due to a spike in tourism from the Rugby World Cup. You asked the boy if he saw anything strange in his bed. He told you that there were two things that he found odd about his bed. The first was that there was these small black dots all over the sheets. You happen to know that these represent excrement from bedbugs. And the other thing that he saw were these small, fat, brown, round insects just underneath the mattress. Patients are often really poor in being able to identify bedbugs, so it's important that you know what they look like. You're pretty sure that what you're dealing with at the time is bedbugs from the multiple clues that you've been given so far. So, how can we best counsel our patient moving forward? Fortunately, although intensely itchy and annoying, these bites are often self-limiting. There are, however, a couple of risks that we need to be aware of. The first is that there are proteins in the saliva of bedbugs, and these can prime the immune system into an allergic reaction. Given that he's managed a flight home, he's probably a bit far down the line to be worrying about anaphylaxis at this point. However, they are intensely itchy, and 10-year-old boys have notoriously dirty fingernails. Bedbugs are also known to be a vector for up to 45 human pathogens, which really opens them up to the possibility of a secondary bacterial infection. I'm pretty sure that you're able to identify cellulitis resultant from these bites, and would be able to treat appropriately with your local antibiotic guidelines. However, it is a good thing to keep in mind when looking specifically at children with things that itch, because they will scratch them. The other consideration is the potential psychological impact of infestation on this child. I don't know about you, but if a child at my school had bedbugs, the other children wouldn't be so kind. The stigma associated with infestation and these kind of bites can lead to bullying and other unpleasantness. What's now important to know is how to help the family make sure that the infestation doesn't take hold within their household, and if there is an infestation there, to give them some advice about how best to deal with it. The old school notion of prescribing permethrin for any weird skin bite thing probably won't apply here, as it's not been shown to have the best effect against bedbugs. They're tenacious little buggers, and have develop resistance to a variety of pest controls, including organophosphates and DDT. So the best option that you have is ivermectin, which has been shown to reduce population sizes, whilst also reducing the number of bites that the human hosts suffer. 
Sheil et al. also demonstrated that ivermectin was detectable in bedbug blood for up to 96 hours after it was administered. However, it was a pretty small sample size. Even here though, in terms of the pills and potions that you can give your patient, there's real limited efficacy at getting rid of these tenacious critters. Just like dealing with an abscess, essentially an infestation of bacteria within the body, you really need source control. Eliminating them by removing them with a vacuum cleaner is probably a reasonable bet. And then to mop up the rest, they really don't do well in the extremes of temperature. Now, I'm not advocating going out and setting the patient's house on fire, but you might be able to advise that your patient uses a steam cleaner to eliminate any remaining pesky critters. I'd also advise them to put their bedsheets on a wash of at least 60 degrees Celsius. That's 140 Fahrenheit for our American listeners, but I really don't know what your washing machine settings look like, to be honest. Failing that, you'll need to get the exterminators out to get rid of these pesky pests. Part of their tenacity is that they can easily survive up to 70 days without a meal, which is certainly a bit better than I can do. Hopefully this gives you the tools to deal with bedbugs when they present to your department. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are some things that you want to keep the same about yourself or the way you live in 2024? In what ways are you already doing well? Well, around New Year's, you might come up with a list of resolutions and zero in on how to change yourself instead of expanding on what you already are doing well. Therapy helps you zero in on your strengths. So instead of trying to fulfill extreme resolutions, you can make effective, meaningful, positive changes. The therapy that I did when my good friend committed suicide was hugely beneficial. It helped me learn some key coping strategies and empowered me to be the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress that you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash emcases today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash emcases. Next up, we have our go-to trauma expert, Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak, who's going to give us the lowdown on fibrinogen replacement and talk a bit about the landmark Cryostat 2 trial. Welcome back. We're talking trauma today as usual, and I'm going to mix it up a bit and reference explicitly a new trial that just got published. I typically keep these very clinical, but this trial warrants some mention, and I'll describe how I think it can be interpreted in the clinical arena. We're going to be talking about fibrinogen replacement in bleeding trauma patients. What's the best available evidence and how our knowledge is changing? So let's get into it. The trial is Cryostat 2. This is an important study that was just published in the UK, and as you may have guessed from the name, it was looking at the administration of cryoprecipitate for trauma patients. In this case, the investigators compared empiric cryoprecipitate to usual practice in patients who had MHP activated, the usual practice being waiting for the level and then giving it to those who have low levels. So here's the bottom line up front. The addition of early an empirical high-dose cryoprecipitate did not improve all-cause 28-day mortality. Okay, so let's try and contextualize this data 
with a few questions and link it up with a case. 43-year-old male on an ATV is brought into your hospital, which is a medium-sized community hospital. He has suspected chest and intra-abdominal injuries. He arrives in the ED with a systolic blood pressure of 85, diastolic of 50, heart rate of 112. It's fairly evident he's bleeding. His fast exam is positive. His pelvis is stable. He's got a femur fracture. His GCS is 12, but no obvious motor deficits. You call for a few units of uncrossed RBCs because you can get those fairly quickly. You do have four units of plasma in your hospital and you have fibrinogen concentrate available. You don't have cryoprecipitate. It's clear he's in hemorrhagic shock. You may also have a component of obstructive shock from a pneumothorax and you'll sort that out. But now you're wondering, mostly because you heard the trauma guy on EM cases talking about fibrinogen, whether you should give empiric fibrinogen replacement. Well, let's go through this in a bit of detail with four questions. Number one, what do I need to know about fibrinogen and clotting? Well, I'm sure there's plenty, but we're going to just focus on the simple stuff. It's a protein made in the liver, and it helps with platelet aggregation. It forms strong and stable clots. I think that's all we need to really understand for this purpose. A key element is that it's the single coagulation factor that is affected most and earliest in trauma-induced coagulopathy. So those levels fall fast and they fall early. In fact, low fibrinogen is found often actually more than 50% of severely injured trauma patients. And it's been studied pretty extensively. And time and time again, we find that in bleeding patients who have low fibrinogen, they have greater blood loss, they require more blood product replacement, they have worse outcomes, and overall, low levels are associated with increased mortality. So in summary, low fibrinogen when you're bleeding is bad, and that's common in trauma patients, except not all trauma patients. And that'll be important later And why cryostat 2 wasn't a positive trial. So question two. If low fibrinogen is linked with poorer outcomes, then replacing it must be good. And how should I do that? Well, first, we actually don't really have RCT-level evidence saying that in patients with low fibrinogen, replacing it leads to better outcomes compared to if we didn't. We're kind of just left assuming we should replace it. So given we don't have better data, we've had to assume that replacement is good when it's low. But for the EBM folks out there, I hear you. The data isn't strong on saying replacement will result in better outcomes, but for now, that's what we have. In Canada, most of us have shifted to using fibrinogen concentrate. The brand names are Fibriga or Reostap, and it's been shown to be non-inferior to cryoprecipitate with a few more upsides. Now that's in cardiac surgery patients. So we've taken a few liberties and now extend this to trauma patients. And in most hospitals in Ontario and maybe across the country, we've replaced cryo with fibrinogen concentrate. So fibrinogen concentrate, you give four grams. It's rapidly reconstituted. Cryo needs thawing. It has a longer shelf life and very low transfusion risks. It's overall an easier to use and probably safer product than cryoprecipitate. Question three. So now when should we give it in trauma? Well, with cryostat 2, I think it's shown us that we shouldn't typically be giving fibrinogen concentrate empirically. 
This study didn't compare giving it versus not giving it. No, instead it was about giving it empirically versus waiting for labs and then giving if it was indicated based on the local hospital protocols. Realistically, I don't think most people in Canada were giving it up front, so it probably just reinforces our current practice in Canadian emergency medicine. Some might ask whether we can compare fibrinogen concentrate with cryo. It's a good question. We don't really know. It seems in other causes of bleeding to be non-inferior, but we don't know in trauma, so I'm just going to equate the two for now. The issue that Cryostat 2 raised is that not all patients who are severely injured have low fibrinogen. Most do, but probably treating all these patients is unnecessary. So for now, my practice is going to be waiting for a level. If it's less than 1.5 grams per liter, then I'll give 4 grams of fibrinogen concentrate, but I won't give it empirically. The caveat will be if the patient is near death and we're giving large volumes of blood products, I'll be honest, I'll probably just give it without the fibrinogen level back. In Kraustat 2, the patients seemed a lot like the patients we see. Most got 5 units of packed cells, 4 units of FFP. They were severely injured, but less than a quarter received more than 10 units of blood products total. They did have 33% with penetrating injuries and a bit of a long transport time to hospital, average about 77 minutes. So whether this is truly representative of Canadian situation or Ontario situation, hard to know, but this is the best data we have. So let's get back to the case. In this case, the patient's hypotensive. I'd give him a few units of red blood cells and reassess. I'd make sure a fibrinogen level is drawn, but I definitely won't give any fibrinogen concentrate empirically. I will, however, give two grams of TXA and reassess the situation. His fibrinogen comes back at 1.3, and he continues to have a systolic of 85. At that point, I'd activate the massive hemorrhage protocol, start ratio-based resuscitation while arranging transport to a tertiary trauma center. And I'd go ahead and give him 4 grams of fibrinogen concentrate because his fibrinogen is less than 1.5. This should help improve his coagulopathy. Now, imagine you don't have a fibrinogen level at your hospital, and perhaps you don't even have more than a few pack cells. Kraustat 2 hasn't really answered what to do in these small hospitals. We do know that empiric treatment in most patients is not better. But a really sick patient and all I have is RBCs, then I'd follow the current Ontario MHP recommendations, which recommends giving FC or fibrinogen concentrate, which is contained in your second MHP cooler if you're in a hospital without plasma. And I would just give that along with RBCs. We are currently updating these guidelines and recommendations, so stay tuned. But for now, in profound shock and without better information and no levels, it's still reasonable to give. But if you can get fibrinogen levels, wait for those. And there you have it, fibrinogen. It's an important adjunct in our treatment and management of trauma-induced coagulopathy, but not something we should just be giving without levels, even for our sicker patients. So the summary... Number one, fibrinogen levels drop early and often, but not in all trauma patients. And it's hard to predict which ones need fibrinogen and which ones don't without the level. And number two, in most instances, wait for a level. Once it comes back, and if it's less than 1.5 grams per liter, give four grams of fibrinogen concentrate and continue to monitor those over the coming hours. That's it for now. 
And now a word from one of our sponsors, Easy Recess, your ultimate support to save lives during the first hour of resuscitation. Picture this. You're faced with intubating a seizing child, managing a peri-arrest patient with a beta blocker overdose, or resuscitating a breathless premature newborn. Calculating doses, setting up drips, choosing the right equipment, and remembering each step can be overwhelming. Easy Recess changes the game. Download Easy Recess today. Use promo code EMCASES, that's one word, E-M-C-A-S-E-S, to get your first two months free or visit easyrecess.com slash emcases for more details. And Easy Recess is E-Z-R-E-S-U-S. Usually in the EBM quick hits, I bring you the biggest, the highest quality studies, those huge multi-center efforts. But this time around, I wanted to cover a small single-center trial because I think it's an interesting little trial, which is easy to understand clinically, so it allows us to focus on a few key evidence-based medicine lessons that I think will help you in your career. So this is Cyber, uh 2023 in the journal Pediatrics. It's a single-center, open-label RCT looking to see, very simple question, does cold air improve symptoms from croup? It's such a great, simple question for a trial. And so they randomized 118 children aged three months to 10 years who had moderate croup. They had to have a Westley croup score greater than three, but they excluded anybody who needed epinephrine. They gave everybody dexamethasone, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram after being triage. And then they were randomized to either sit outside for 30 minutes, and they did provide these patients with blankets to keep them warm, or to sit inside in the waiting room. And they only randomized patients on days when the temperature outside was less than 10 degrees Celsius. So we're looking at 30 minutes in an average breathing about 5 degree air outside compared to 24 degree air inside. And they just looked to see, did your symptoms on that croup score improve at 30 minutes? And there was a statistically significant benefit from cold air. 49% of the cold air group were improved when they were rechecked as compared to only 24% of the indoor group, which isn't bad. Now, the difference disappeared by 60 minutes. So this appears to provide only very short-term symptom relief, but cold air definitely seemed to do something. So it's a really simple trial from a clinical standpoint. And for that reason, I like it a lot, even if it's not groundbreaking. But I think there were four key evidence-based medicine lessons that I thought of as I was reading through this trial and I wanted to share with you. The first lesson is that RCTs are awful at telling us about harms from treatments. And this is really important when we assess other trials. They will often emphasize often very little benefits, but we're often left in the dark about harms. And so it's really impossible to do a harm-benefit analysis. One of the key ways that trials tend to downplay harms is they simply ignore them. They don't look for them. And I find it absolutely amazing that in this croup trial where they had children sit outside in the middle of winter for 30 minutes, Nobody checked the temperature on any of these children after they were brought back inside. They just didn't do it. It seems absolutely amazing, but this is a common theme throughout all of our research. We just don't look for harm, and therefore we don't find it. We have no idea if some of these kids came back inside hypothermic. Lesson number two. We often get tricked by surrogate outcomes that seem really important. In this trial, the primary outcome was based on the Wesley Croup score. It's a firm number. It seems objective. And more than that, it includes measures that we all agree are really important. Retractions, air entry, strider, cyanosis. 
So if a kid looks better, there are less retractions. We tend to assume that's a really good thing. It's hard to remember that that's a surrogate outcome that may or may not predict things that we really care about, things like hospitalizations or mortality. So why is this important here? Well, surrogate outcomes are subject to confounding in a way that patient-oriented outcomes are not. Let's say some of these kids did get mildly hypothermic. Well, that might decrease their overall activity levels. They might have a lower respiratory rate and less work of breathing, not because they are better, but simply because of the hypothermia. In fact, these sick kids could be sicker, but they might objectively look better on this surrogate outcome. So EBM lesson number two, always be very cautious of surrogate outcomes, even when they seem important. Lesson number three, open label or unblinded trials are always going to be problematic. Presumably, the doctors here would be able to tell which kids were outside and which kids were inside as soon as they touched them, as soon as they performed a physical exam. If those doctors expected cold air to work, that might change how they feel about their respiratory exam. The line between mild and moderate retractions is very fuzzy and open to lots of interpretation. Same with you know normal or somewhat decreased air entry. There's a lot of room for subjectivity, and subjectivity in unblinded trials is a problem. Final lesson, despite the shortcomings of this trial, I love this trial. I think it shows us that anybody can get involved in research. It shows us that we can use good methodology and RCT to answer almost all questions. It shows us that if you pick the right question, you can come up with a really interesting research, even in a single center setting. So if anyone out there has been on the fence about getting involved in research, I think this paper is a great motivator. It tells you the key. Pick an interesting question, but also Try to find a simple question at a scale that you'll actually pragmatically be able to answer with your available resources. So overall bottom line here, clinically, this trial is not definitive and the long-term care of group is clearly dexamethasone. But as a parent, if I have another one of those nights where the cough is just preventing any sleep, I might use cold air while I wait for the dexamethasone to kick in. Yeah, this is the best data that we have. And this RCT definitely made it look effective for short-term symptom control. As long as you're cautious about the potential harms and bundle up really well, and don't try to use this data in Montreal in January where the temperatures will be far too low to be healthy. All right, that's all this time for the EBM Quick Hick, where we try to make EBM simple and quick. All right, hope you learned a little bit about button battery ingestions. That presentations can be vague and confused with coin ingestion, and the crazy fact that they can present up to weeks after ingestion. Britt Long gave us a great review of what ED docs need to know about C. difficile infection. Look out for toxic megacolon in these patients, and if they're obstructed or have ileus, give oral vancomycin rectally. Oral vancomycin or fidaxomycin are first line, not metronidazole. And C. diff is a tough little bug. Alcohol-based sanitizers do not kill the spores. So wash your hands with soap and water after you see patients with gastro, just in case they might have C. diff. When it comes to ECG interpretation and toxicology, I like to divide things into three groups. One, heart rate and rhythm. So think about antidotes for bratty and tacky dysrhythmias and midazolam for agitation. Two, Electrical conduction and axis. Give sodium bicarb for a QRS wider than 100, especially if there's a right bundle branch block or rightward shift. And give magnesium if the QTC is over 500. And then third, 
ischemic changes. Ask yourself, could these STT wave changes be Brugada pattern from sodium channel blockade or an MI from cocaine? Then we got from our best of Don't Forget the Bubble series, when it comes to bed bugs, they're not just a nuisance. They can cause anaphylaxis, bacterial infection, and major cognitive effects. So you need to know how to identify them and how to get rid of them. The bites are itchy and usually in small clusters or in a zigzag pattern lasting a couple of weeks. And the bugs are little brown critters with black poops. To get rid of them, first extremes of temperature work. So less than minus 20 degrees Celsius or more than 60 degrees Celsius. So put the bed sheets on super high heat in the washer and dryer, bag up the bugs, and when it comes to medications, the best we've got is ivermectin. If all of that doesn't work, then suggest to the patient to call an exterminator. Give fibrinogen, not cryoprecipitate, in big trauma patients with a fibrinogen level of less than 1.5, and consider it when you're throwing the typewriter at a really sick patient if you can't get a fibrinogen level. And then finally, when it comes to croup, cold air for croup probably helps. Thank you to all our fantastic quick hitters. And thanks again to all of you listeners who generously donated a few of your hard-earned dollars to KPM Cases Foam Ed using our donation button on the website or on your phone. If you haven't already, check out EM Cases Top 10 of 2023 on the site. Last year was packed with educational goodies. So until next time, take it easy. Okay.